A Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 7. Brady and Lorna zero in on Von Grunkel. Stingler waited some time before he used the office telephone. The timing of his eavesdropping had been superb, and just those few words by someone on the other end made him very excited. He looked out the window, watching coffee step into his Ford sedan under the parking lot lights. By the time the taillights of the Ford faded into the traffic, the operator was connecting a call to Von Grunkel. Gunther answered the phone. Impossible, shouted Gunther loudly into the telephone when Stingler told him that Brady was in Boise. Boise, I tell you, Gunther, you damn fool, put Von Grunkel on. Jeez, well, he's going to be six feet under if you don't get him on the phone. Gunther let the telephone dangle as he ran down the corridor of the television station, passing the sign on the air. He ran onto the stage of the small auditorium. Looking like a coach on the base pass, he besieged Von Grunkel with all sorts of bizarre signals. Sitting in a chair before an overflowing crowd, the doctor was in the midst of a response to a caller's question he saw Gunther and merely shook his head until he saw him mouth the name Brady. Von Grunkel seemed startled. His head jumped as if he were a car hitting a bump on the road. If you would excuse me for a few moments, he said to the host, my aide will talk to you for a short time. I will be right back, I assure you. It's one of the benefits of live television, folks. Apparently the doctor has something else to attend to. Of course, we announced earlier that Dr. Von Grunkel has a wide variety of events scheduled in Washington this weekend, and no doubt he's checking on those plans right at this moment. Larry is on phone, doctor, said Gunther as he passed Von Grunkel and sat in front of the cameras. Von Grunkel jaunted as fast as he could, his body creaking as he moved toward the telephone. Out of breath, he picked up the receiver and paused a few seconds before he spoke. Larry, what is this about Brady? Ollie, he's in Boise, Idaho. Oh, dear God, how did he find out about Boise? I think we both know the answer to that, David Todd. There exactly is Brady now. Some motel called the Ponderosa Lodge, said Stingler. You don't suppose he knows? I don't know. We can't waste any more time. Yes, Larry, you are right. They would trace anything back to us. That is why I want you to place a call to Mr. Sidney Bishop in Chicago. You tell Mr. Bishop that useful bit of information you have on Brady. Brilliant. They'll kill him with no qualms and we won't even be involved. <laughs> I, I thought you would like that. Now make that call and we'll wait. Nelson had finally packed his briefcase, and Brady could hear him leaving the inner office. He heard the manager's footsteps slowly advancing across the wooden floor. Nelson moved toward the glass door, finally leaving and locking the door from the outside. Brady, biting his lip to combat the cramps in his neck and back, kept still, just to be sure that Nelson was gone. Amazingly, he stayed another five minutes, upon which he opened the door from the inside and literally fell onto the wooden office floor. God, he exclaimed, breathing haphazardly. 
He moved his tired neck and sore back ligaments rigorously as he stood on his feet. He reached to his left and flipped the switch for the overhead ceiling fan. Holding his aching shoulder, he rushed to the telephone and dialed the Ponderosa Lodge. Hello? Morneth, this is Brady. Brady, I just called coffee. He seems very upset. I did what you said. I read everything in that journal. He wants you to call him, and he gave his word he won't call the authorities. Where are you? I just spent the last two and a half hours in some supply closet, he said, still moving his neck. I want you down here. There's nobody here now, and I think it's better than your being alone at the motel all that time. I'll let you inside. The white building we passed this afternoon, correct? 667 South Main Street, third floor. What if some alarm goes off? No, no, I heard the guy lock the door, Lorner. It's all right. I want you here with me. This could take some time here in the office. I'll lock twice. Wonderful. Now be careful coming down here. Oh, you'll be careful, Brady, she said, hanging up the telephone. Brady stared at the receiver and smiled. He set down the telephone and looked around the dim light of the office. There was a filing cabinet next to the receptionist's desk, and one next to the stationery closet, both a possible source of information about Nolte. He went directly to the receptionist's cabinet, still having an aversion to the stationery closet. He reached over and pulled open the drawer, sifting through several categories until he came to the section marked Personnel. Rummaging through the folders, he came to his surprise, Nolte's folder. The mere fact that he had found a folder was significant. If Von Grunkel was involved in improprieties and was blackmailed by Nolte, it was only logical to assume that Consul would not leave any information about Nolte in their files. To do so would only implicate the company. Nolte, Harold Lester, born. January 29, 1917, Butte, Montana. Every relevant piece of information seemed to be in the folder. Unlike the retail outlet, Nolte had put in a lengthy amount of service. His driving record was flawless and his attendance nearly perfect. The overall impression Brady got from the files was confusion. Nolte was long-term and had no reason for leaving. In fact, his stated reason was left blank on the file paper. Brady put the manila folder under his arm and shut the drawer. He headed for the inner offices, opened the door, and walked by Nelson's office. In front of him was a large office with ten desks lit by two nightlights. In the corner was a bulky photocopy machine adjacent to the beige filing cabinets that lined the outer walls of the room. This was an area marked shipping records, a potential source for him. His first notion, however, was to copy Nolte's file, which he did on the machine returning the file to the cabinet in the front office. He looked at his watch. Lorna would be at the door any minute, he thought, as he retreated to the records office. Nevertheless, he had to begin his search and went right to the desk, grabbing a high-intensity lamp. He pointed the beam at the cabinets. The drawers were labeled Old Bills of Lading for Console Shipments. They were in chronological order, beginning with the previous week of July 13, 1963 and dating back as they ran along the wall to January of 1960. It would be a formidable task indeed if he were to spend the whole weekend sifting through all those files. The previous six months were useless to him. Nolte had left console by that time. Brady moved the light along the months, running his index finger under the white date labels. In a short time, he had reached December 1962, a fateful month not only for Nolte, but for him personally. It was the beginning of his great debt. 
to Sidney Bishop, a debt which eventually would consume his well-furnished apartment, his showroom 1963 Corvette, and begin to shatter his unstable mind. He thumbed through the folders, each marked by individual days, coming to the one dated December 9th, the day Nolte left console trucking. Pulling out the folder, he placed it under the high-intensity lamp. Bill after bill revealed nothing until he noticed the bold signature of Harold Nolte at the end of one of the stacks. He had to question the fact that if such improprieties were taking place, the bills with Nolte's signature should not have been in the files. What it showed was a simple delivery from a food packer, Weston Dorrell Packing Company in Boise, to Wayside Garage in Junebug, Oregon. Upon closer examination, he could see that it wasn't that simple at all. The number of packages delivered was 154, an unusual shipment for a garage. He frowned, not comprehending the meaning of it as he heard two knocks on the outside door. He set the bill down and ran into the other room, unlocked the door and quickly opened it. Lorna was standing in the hallway. You find anything? She whispered. Yep, he said, locking the door once again. He led her into the rear offices. The application is here in total, but look at this, December 9th. Lorna stared at the bill and shook her head. Food shipments to a garage? Very perceptive, kid, he said as she handed the bill back to him. He went over to the adjacent cabinets, dragging the lamp along as he found sections for the accounts payable. As Lorna sat on one of the desks, Brady went through the entire month of December and then to January, and then he erupted. Damn! Damn! He shouted, jumping up and down. Colin Corporation! Colin Corporation! That's Von Grunkle, Warner! Colin Corporation! Is that Von Grunkle? She asked as she leaped from the desk. She looked over at the paid bill. They paid it. $18 freight. I knew it. I knew it. Damn it. I knew it. He said as if he had been vindicated after being proved wrong. But Brady, this still doesn't show anything wrong. She said, holding his wrist. Give me time, Lorna Dune, give me time, he said as he walked over to the photocopier. Look, you just turn the key after putting the paper face down. I'm going through the bills of lading. I want you to copy the ones I give you, then check for the corresponding payment. Copy that one too, then put it back in the file. Do you think you can do that? Yeah, I can do that. Of course I can, she said, resenting his attitude. She walked over to the cabinets and put her arms across her chest as Brady looked at her. Well? Oh, he said as he went back to the bills. They worked in conjunction for nearly six hours. Harold Nolte's name was on a majority of the bills of lading to Wayside Garage, Junebug, Oregon. Brady had gone back to the summer of 1960 and a definite pattern was emerging. The cargo was as diverse as he could have imagined. Steel frames from the Midwest, concrete from Maine, molded plastic computers from Massachusetts, computer cards, paint from Kansas City, and aircraft parts from Southern California, even clothing from a tailor in Tolson, Washington, as well as a shipment of modified foodstuffs. It was two o'clock on Saturday morning when Brady looked over to the tired Lorna as she copied the last payment record. Everything, build a Colin Corporation said Brady. Look at this. I tell you, they faked the damn landing and Nolte had figured it out last year. He knew what they were doing, Lorna. 
I don't know where the hell Junebug, Oregon is, but I'll bet my life it's just a gunshot's distance from Tobin Falls, California, he said as he thought about Von Grunkel. That bastard, excuse my language, but he's getting richer and richer. Now he's famous and respected all over the globe, and he'll probably even have a place in history, unless you call your editor right now, she said, lifting up the desk telephone. No, 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 he might call the cops. Tom is too self-righteous about things. Puts law over friendship. Coffee I can still trust, he told her as he began to place the call to the operator. It was past 5 o'clock in the morning in Springfield, Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., and Bob Coffee couldn't sleep. He stood in the doorway of his kitchen, watching the sun come up through the trees. Only the sound of the birds disturbed the early morning peace. When the telephone rang, he rushed over, catching it before it woke his wife. Yes, Colonel Coffee here. Bob, it's Bill. Bill, my God, where are you, Bill? Bob, I've found significant information concerning Von Grunkel. There was a gap. Coffee did not know how to respond. He had heard Brady make such accusations dozens of times in the past from dozens of locations around the country. All of those times, however... He was not under the progressive strain that was evident from the incidents in Chicago. Coffee spoke as slowly and as sympathetically as he could to his troubled friend. The girl read it to me, Bill. No, Bob, Nolte. I have all his freight records. You what? asked Coffee. You really didn't break in there. No, I hid in there. Damn it, Bob. Nolte and the others have been delivering all the makings of that spaceship, the food, the parts, everything, to a place called Junebug, Oregon. Oh, Bill, for God's sakes, let sleeping dogs lie. Bob, every one of those bills has been paid by Colin Corporation. Bill, you're under a lot of pressure. I can fly out there if you want. We'll talk about what happened in Chicago. Screw Chicago, Coffee. Von Grunkle faked this whole alien thing, I tell you. When are you going to wake up to the fact there are no aliens? There are no aliens. Bill, said Coffee slowly, I, I really think you will. Maybe you should go down to the local police. Well, I guess I can see who my real friends are. I thought you had more guts, Colonel. You're afraid to shake that job of yours. I have nothing more to say. He yelled and he hung up. Coffee held the receiver for a few seconds and then set it back on the hook. He walked over to the open door, the situation having changed now, and he debated the desirability of calling the police. It seemed the logical course. He was very perturbed with Brady and his actions, including the break-in at Consul. It was only the long bond between them that prevented Coffee from placing the call to turn Brady into the police. In Boise, Brady clenched both his fists. Well, you blew that, scolded Lana. Oh, what could I do? The guy thinks I'm nuts. Well, what? I mean, look at it from his viewpoint. What you did in Chicago wouldn't get you the Citizen of the Year award, and you've cried wolf so many times about Von Grunkel. Sure, Coffee thinks you're out of your mind. Brady nodded his head. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. He needs these copies, said Brady, picking up the stack in his hand. That's what I was going to tell you, she said. You're right about coffee, though. Above everything else, he is your friend, and he knows the whole Von Grunkel issue, and he knows who to call for action. And he's in a government job, Lorna.
military no less. If I send him the copies, he might not be able to rock the boat until he had absolute proof. What are the odds? You're a betting man, Brady. What are the odds? Could go either way. But if we don't send him the copies, Lorna, we'll reach a dead end. Lorna took out a large brown shipping envelope from one of the side desks and placed the copies inside. Using the shipping tape, they sealed the package and tied it to prevent ripping. Brady found a roll of stamps in the desk and placed more than enough postage over the package, and then he addressed it directly to Coffee's house in Virginia. With that accomplished, they put everything back where they had found it. Brady shut off the light and left the inner room. This is really weird, she said as he led her through the hallway to the front office. I believed it. I really believed it. You believed what? The landing. It seemed so real. Them coming off the ramp and all the people they took with them? Guess I still want it to be real. That's just it, Lorna. That's just it, said Brady as they came to the door. People will believe what they truly hope for. They always have and they always will. Unfortunately, when that happens, the really important things get pushed aside. Bill, she said, calling him by his first name. I believe you, even though no one else does, and I'll stay with you. Well, thank you, Lorna Doon. That means everything to me right now, he said as he kissed her on the forehead and turned to unlock the door. They stepped into a narrow corridor. All the offices were closed now, and the only light came from the streetlights outside. They went softly down the dusty slate stairs and were quickly outside. The streets were deserted and the air was cool. Warner found a nearby mailbox. Brady rushed over, held the package up in the air and kissed it ceremoniously before he dropped it inside. Then he looked at the mailbox one final time and they made their way back to the Ponderosa Lodge. Twenty minutes later, close to three o'clock in the morning, they walked into the parking lot of the Ponderosa. The flashing vacancy sign was the only break of the stillness. They crossed the sand and walked up to the motel room. Brady pushed the key in the deadbolt and turned it very easily. He unlocked the lower lock and then stepped into the room. The television was still on and broadcasting a test pattern and emitting a signal tone. Lorna walked over to the bed and flung herself forward to rest, but Brady was still perplexed. I locked that deadbolt, he said with a puzzled look. So did I. She answered with her face. Stingler waited some time before he used the office telephone. The timing of his eavesdropping had been superb, and just those few words by someone on the other end made him very excited. He looked out the window, watching Coffee step into his Ford sedan under the parking lot lights. By the time the taillights of the Ford faded into the traffic, the operator was connecting a call to Von Grunkel. Stingler waited some time before he used the office telephone. The timing of his eavesdropping had been superb, and just those few words by someone on the other end made him very excited. He looked out the window, watching Coffee step into his Ford sedan under the parking lot lights. By the time the taillights of the Ford faded into the traffic, the operator was connecting a call to Von Grunkel. Gunkel bodies. His world was consumed in a twinkling green madness as he sped away from the tragedy and into his nonsensical void. As the minutes seemed to drag by, he worried about Lorna in the rear parking lot and wondered how they had found him. It must have been coffee, he thought. He had to have called the authorities, and the mob had found out through their own sources. All his thoughts about coffee, however, were buried away as the stars 
now shine brightly overhead. Up there in the sky, said the boy on horseback. Jesus, God, exclaimed the rider as he jumped down to the ground with the boy. In the sky, four blurbs of aqua light were pursuing a fifth multicolored spot through the northern skies near the Big Dipper. Not only was the spectacle visually striking, but it was totally out of the realm of anything that Hank had ever seen. There was no doubt, as the light came closer to him, what they were witnessing was not a natural phenomenon. The light bedazzled them. The fifth light was becoming brighter and brighter as it reached the western skies. It took the form of a flowing band of multicolored lights with thousands of luminous blue rods extending at various lengths from all angles. Its speed seemed to be too great for its maneuverability, and some of the rods scraped against the peaks of the mountain range ahead. That triggered a violent explosion on the top of the peaks, throwing rock and debris across the plains. The ship continued, even more out of control now, tumbling as it roared directly over them, frightening them beyond comprehension. Now the other blotches of light appeared above the mountain. The five M-shaped vessels in a deep aqua glow capped a series of window openings in the lower dip of the M. The vessel seemed to slow above one of the mountains where the first ship had hit and their glowing light vaguely outlined the mountain peaks. Five ships hovered as the first elliptical ship headed right for the wagon. What's happening, Mr. Hank? asked the boy as they lay on their bellies. The rider pushed the boy's head to the dusty ground as the multicolored ship crashed into the plane some distance from them. At once the area became lighter than day, and the wagon train vaporized into a white fireball. Then the sound wave hit with the fury of a hell-inspired thunderstorm, the ground moving in compliance with the force of unbelievable energy. Four of the other ships moved in an instant to a hovering position over the wreckage. Mr. Hank! Shut up, boy! Shut up! said Hank as he watched the ships produce a wide dispersion of brilliant red energy, vaporizing any debris that remained from the crash. Their task seemingly complete, they moved back in less than a second to their hovering positions above the two mountain peaks. From the far end of the formation, one of the ships shot an expanding green beam directly at the rider and the boy. The twinkling green light, identical to the light at the beginning of Brady's blackout, filled every square inch of the space around them. The outer surroundings seemed to vanish into a gentle hum like that of a thousand bees. They felt light, very light, as the sensation of gravity diminished into a completely weightless state. Within this environment of green light, Brady shot back into the void. After a considerable period of time, he was covering Warner. His mind, however, was still immersed in this blackout. They're going to take us, he yelled as the machine gun fire ceased. The sedan fishtailed across the sand and onto the highway. Brady arose, still delirious. They're going to take us to the ship, he cried as he ran over along the swimming pool and toward the open grassland. Brady, cried Warner, running after him. Brady, it's all over. As the other guests evacuated their rooms, Brady ran from the motel property and into the shadows. Lorna followed after him, getting closer as he slipped on the prairie grass. The blackout had been so vivid, he had trouble discerning whether he was back in the desert or actually in the rear of the motel. He screamed as he fell on the grass, but she caught him throwing her arms around his quivering body. 
They'll kill us all, like they did them people in the wagons, he shouted, his eyes hysterical as he attempted to get to his feet. No, Brady, no, no, she shouted and slapped his face. The slap seemed to simmer him down, but he was still breathing as if he had just run a four-minute mile. In the distance, not more than a few hundred yards, the Ponderosa Lodge blazed high into the night. Firemen and police cruisers were on the scene now, surrounded by a sizable crowd. It was at this time, as he saw the flames, that reality snapped back to him. He looked down at Warner, more frightened by his odd behavior than by the attack. "'I'm sorry, Warner,' he said as he sat down in the grass. "'For what?' she asked softly as she studied his facial expressions. She was doubting his sanity, and he knew it. He was envisioning things that just did not exist. "'For what, Brady?' What are you sorry for? We could have been killed back there. My mind. I'm going crazy. Never mind that, she said quickly. Somebody tipped off Bishop Brady. Coffee. Maybe he alerted somebody by accident. If he called the police, Bishop could have found out. Oh, I can't believe he'd do this to me, Lorna, as his mind drifted back to the spaceships in the desert. Lorna, I think you should go back to your parents, not only because of what just happened over there, but... No, I can't go back. Don't you understand that? She said in the dim orange firelight. Lorna, can't you see I'm losing my mind? I'm convinced of that now. I'm not sane. The pressures have been too great. Oh, come on, Brady. A few blackouts. You're bound to dream some things, she said convincingly. But no, that which you call a dream has continued exactly from where I left it off in Chicago. I, or whoever's on that horse, that Hank character saw spaceships coming over a double-peaked mountain. One of them hit the mountain and spun off into the wagon train. Is that why you were yelling? Partially. These other ships, greenish-blue, they came out of nowhere, scooped up the whole mess with some kind of red ray. It's all so real. And I was there. I could swear I was there. Sure, sure, she said, holding his hand. These ships, they move so damn fast I couldn't even see them move. I... I just don't understand this. Sure, she said as tears came to her eyes. They set their sights on us, just like the light I've told you about. We were weightless, lifted away. I was scared, so scared, he said, looking at her with great consternation. You do believe me, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. But we have to get out of here. Do you think I'm going insane? It really doesn't matter what I think right now, she said as she rose to her feet. The key is survival. Let's get out of here. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theater of the Words.